Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. It has been a turbulent few days in British politics, with the introduction by Boris Johnson's government of its internal market bill, which would enable the UK to override parts of its withdrawal agreement with the EU. The measure has caused consternation, not least because, by the British government's admission, elements of the bill constitute a breach of international law. As the bill works its way through the British Parliament, negotiations between the EU and the UK on their future relationship are continuing, but with such a cloud now hanging over the talks that many observers fear a no-deal Brexit is now more likely to happen than not. For more on this, I'm joined from London by our London editor, Dennis Staunton. Dennis, we'll start with the internal market bill itself. What's in it and why is it so controversial? Well, the bill itself is supposed to uh, ensure that the internal market between uh, England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland it will function properly after uh, Britain leaves all of the rules of the European Union at the end of the year. Because some powers were devolved from uh, you know, back to Brussels, which would have otherwise been held by the devolved administrations in uh, different parts of the country. This is, uh, you know, the idea was to kind of tidy this up just to make sure that there wouldn't be some problem between sending Welsh lamb to Scotland or uh, Scotland whiskey to somewhere else, whatever. So that was the the theory behind it. But what they did was that they put in these clauses into it, which said that British ministers would be allowed to override the uh, withdrawal agreement by choosing to do various things in Northern Ireland, which are supposed to be uh, governed by the Northern Ireland Protocol. So the three specific things are that the under the Northern Ireland Protocol, all goods moving from Great Britain to Northern Ireland will be subject to checks and customs uh, controls and potentially tariffs unless they're uh, deemed not to be at risk because they fall into certain categories. And so they're not deemed to be at risk of moving beyond Northern Ireland into the Republic and consequently into the European single market. Then a second thing is to do with Again, according to EU customs rules, because uh, Northern Ireland will have to follow EU customs rules, even though it's officially part of the UK's customs territory, one of the confusing elements of the withdrawal agreement, they're going to have to fill in uh, an export declaration summary form every time a good moves from Northern Ireland into Great Britain. And uh, so uh, basically this uh, act or this bill would say, actually, a British minister can just decide they don't have to do that. And then the third thing is that uh, under the Northern Ireland Protocol, uh, Britain will have to notify the European Union about any state subsidies to business which could affect the market in Northern Ireland. What the British were worried about is that that might not just affect, uh, say, a subsidy to a firm in Northern Ireland, but if you were uh, doing a subsidy to some uh, business based in Britain, uh, that also happened to have an operation in Northern Ireland, or if it was just even part of the market there, that basically the Europeans could have a veto over this state subsidy. And so they, uh, the bill also says that they, a British minister, will be able to uh, just decide exactly how far this provision on state subsidies go. And so what they said was that they would simply suspend uh, the withdrawal agreement, suspend international law, suspend any kind of international court. And you know, essentially, they're saying that no law can override this law that we're making now so that actually everything illegal 
can be legal if we say so uh, under these uh, the terms of this bill. And Dennis Boris Johnson has accused the EU of attempting to place a blockade between Britain and Northern Ireland um, in, in terms of uh, transport of food and so on. And in fact, uh, with attempting to break up the United Kingdom, has he any grounds at all for those kinds of assertions? No, not really. What he's talking about there is that, uh, you know, when uh, Britain leaves the rules of the European Union at the end of the year, when the transition period is over, the European Union has this system where it decides which countries are deemed safe to import food food from. So in other words, these countries, they've got food safety standards which are high enough that the European Union uh, says they're on a list of countries that it's safe to have food imported to from. And so uh, Britain would expect to be on this list because obviously at the moment it's following the same rules as the European Union. But the Europeans have been saying, look, uh, you know, before we can put you on this list, first of all, it's for us to decide unilaterally. It's an autonomous thing where we decide who can export into our market. But uh, but the thing is that, you know, we want to know not just what your uh, rules are going to be on the last day of the transition period, but also what your rules are going to be in future. And particularly, for example, what kind of imports you're going to have. So are you going to say, get chlorinated chicken coming from the United States, which we in Europe don't want to have. So we just want to know what exactly your plans are for this. And the problem is that if the uh, Europeans didn't give uh, this third country listing, as it's called, to Britain, then because Northern Ireland has to follow the EU rules about food safety, that would mean that, in theory, that uh, Tesco's couldn't send one of their delicious ready meals from Great Britain over to uh, Northern Ireland. Uh, now, it's one of those things which, uh, you know, actually, uh, you know, all they have to do really is to give the information and then they'll get on the list. But it's the kind of thing which really does sound very dramatic, the idea that somehow uh, Northern Ireland is going to be cut off from its food supplies in, uh, in Britain. The Prime Minister has said many times he wants to bring unity to the country during his premiership. I therefore congratulate him on having in just one short year united his five predecessors. <laughs> unfortunately, unfortunately, their point of agreement is that he is trashing the reputation of this country and trashing the reputation of his office. Now, he had an uncomfortable time, uh, the Prime Minister, that is, in the House of Commons earlier this week when he was questioned by a man, a man as you described him, uh, a man regarded as a ghost of Labour's past, the former party leader, Ed Miliband. What flaws or inconsistencies in the government's approach did, did Miliband expose? Well, really what he did was that he just went through uh, uh, you know, all of the arguments. The fact is that uh, the government had come up with a whole series of different and sometimes conflicting reasons for why it had brought this, uh, you know, brought this bill forward in the first place. And because the sort of, you know, the information about it was leaked a few days early, they hadn't got their, you know, communications plan in order. So he said, let's go through the top five of their excuses. You know, first they said they were just trying to clear something up. Then they, you know, mentioned the food book. And he just went through the ways in which, uh, you know, none of these either uh, were real concerns because there was another mechanism within the withdrawal agreement for resolving these difficulties, or else that actually the bill does nothing uh, to fix it. So in the, what we were just talking about, the food blockade, there's nothing actually in this legislation that would actually do anything to protect Britain if the Europeans behaved in this way. Uh, come on, come on, tell us what, what, what clause... What clause protects the threat that he says he's worried about, about uh, GB to Northern Ireland exports? I give way to him. Well, the right honourable gentleman can't give way 
There you have it. He didn't read the protocol. He hasn't read the bill. He doesn't know his stuff. But what he really uh, majored on was just the fact that this is the withdrawal agreement that Boris Johnson negotiated nine months ago. We have a deal. We've done it. And it did indeed turn out, as I correctly prophesied, to be oven ready. And, that, and, and essentially what Miliband was saying was that he could, there was nobody he could blame except himself. Now, we know the bill, Dennis, has caused disquiet here in Ireland and elsewhere in the EU because it increases the prospect of, of Britain finally leaving the EU. Now, we know it has already left, of course, but it's in a transition period and of it finally leaving with, without a deal. What about the reaction within Britain itself, particularly within the Tory party? How much disquiet is there there? There has been a lot of disquiet, partly because the Northern Ireland Secretary, Brandon Lewis, went into the House of Commons and he was asked if this uh, breaches international law. And he said, yes, in a very limited and specific way, it does breach international law. And so that kind of uh, you know left people with nowhere to hide, because generally speaking, if a country is going to break international law, they say, well, this is just a, uh, this is an interpretation of it. And obviously, the other side may have their interpretation. We let the lawyers sort it out over a period of years in international courts. But you don't generally go out and say, yes, I'm actually going to burgle your house and here are the keys in my hand. You know, that's normally not the way in which states operate. And so what that meant was that uh, various traditional conservatives who thought that uh, Britain shouldn't go around breaking the treaties that uh, it has just made uh, a few months ago and that it ought not also uh, to be announcing that it was going to break international law. They said this is, you know, it's bad in its own right, it's wrong, but also just that, you know, Britain's not going to have a leg to stand on next time it's starts telling China that uh, it has broken the British-Chinese accord over Hong Kong because of some actions they've taken in Hong Kong. You know, uh, who do you think you are to talk to people if you're saying that you uh, you yourself just tear up treaties when it suits you? And so there was uh, a bit of a rebellion, both in the House of Lords, uh, you know, people like Michael Howard, uh, former Conservative leader and a serious Brexiteer, uh, Norman Lamont as well, well, and also all of the five uh, living former prime ministers have in some way criticised this. And in the House of Commons, there was a group of rebels led by uh, Bob Neill, who's a veteran Conservative MP, uh, also a lawyer, and he uh, was leading the opposition. But they uh, came up with an amendment where they said what they want is that Parliament will have the final say. So in other words, that the bill would go through with these powers, but the government couldn't exercise these powers to tear up the withdrawal agreement unless it won a majority on a vote in the House of Commons to do so. And yesterday, uh, on Wednesday, Boris Johnson uh, met these rebels in Downing Street and agreed to basically to produce a version of their amendment himself. So the government will back that. So that's going to more or less kill off the... Um, Conservative backbench rebellion in the House of Commons. It then goes to the House of Lords, where it's uh, less popular, and uh, but their powers are limited. They can delay it, but they tend to be reluctant to delay for too long because they're an unelected House. And if uh, the House of Commons uh, chooses to pass a bill, especially with a, you know, with a big majority, then uh, many of the Lords will not want to uh, overdo their powers. But on the other hand, uh, the timetable looks as if it might take a little while. So, uh, you know, by the time it gets through the Commons at the end of this month, and then it has to get to the Lords, get debated, and then various bits and pieces of things happen, which could take us into a few weeks longer than that. And so to recap, the, the compromise in essence that these, uh, the Bob Neill um, and, and other rebels have agreed is that essentially they would allow the bill to pass, but as long as before 
it's uh, relevant provisions were ever implemented, the, the House of Commons would get a vote. Exactly. So that, uh, in other words, what they're effectively saying to the Europeans is, instead of putting your trust in the Conservative government, uh, hoping that they're not going to use this revolver they've put on the negotiating table and tear up the agreement because basically what Boris Johnson is saying, well, I don't want to use these powers and I'll only do it if you make me. So instead of putting their trust in the Conservative government, they put their trust in the Conservative-controlled House of Commons where the Conservatives have an 80-seat majority and hoping that they uh, will uh, decide not to do it. So it's a bit like Again, to go back to the uh, the metaphor of burgling, that if you were to say, I have the keys of your house, uh, but me and my friends, we're not going to burgle it until we agree among ourselves this is the right time to do it. <laughs> so that's all right. And most of the Europeans, you know, maybe not that surprisingly, don't think it is all right. And that does lead me on to my next question, Dennis. I mean, um, this would not wash with the EU, would it? Presumably the EU will not wait around for this bill to be passed and then wait for a further Commons vote on whether it will be implemented or not. Well, I think in a funny way they might, because uh, until such time as the bill goes on to the statute book, it's still, uh, you know, there's a chance that it's not going to happen. So it's not actually yet a law. Now, you could say that uh, Britain has already uh, breached international law and uh, reneged on the withdrawal agreement just by uh, proposing this bill. Uh, you know, that, uh, and that is certainly arguable. But uh, the Europeans are reluctant to walk away from the talks because they don't. They feel as if there's a blame game going on, and they don't really want to give Boris Johnson the t- satisfaction of walking away uh, so that he can say, "Look, I was still ready to get a deal, but these people are impossible. You can't deal with them." And so, I think what they're going to do is there are sort of two elements to this. One is that within the joint committee between Britain and the European Union, which uh, talks about how you uh, implement the Northern Ireland Protocol. The uh, Mara Sefcovic, who's the uh, the Vice President of the European Commission, who represents the EU on that, he said uh, last week that uh, you know the Europeans want the British to take this law off the uh, table, withdraw these uh, clauses, and certainly by the end of September. Now, the reason he said by the end of September, he didn't really say what they do by the end of September. He just sort of said, you know, by the way, we're also ready to use all the powers we have within the withdrawal agreement. In other words, we could take legal action against Britain. Uh, but the reason he said at the end of September was partly to give the British time to think about it and see what happens here, but also to allow the Europeans, the member states and the institutions to kind of get all their ducks in a row so they all agree on exactly what the next course of action could be. So you have that going on. And let's say by the end of September, uh, this thing is still going through, then you could probably expect the Europeans to talk about some kind of legal action uh, about infringement or infraction proceedings, as they call it. And then if uh, then you have the other thing, a set of negotiations, which are the negotiations between Michel Barnier and David Frost about the future relationship between Britain and the European Union. And those go on. And they've been talking this week. They've been negotiating in Brussels this week, almost as if nothing has happened. And so, uh, so, so one interpretation of what is happening right now is that uh, what the British government was trying to do was to add a bit of drama into the talks to get the attention of the European leaders and to hope that they would bring some momentum to trying to get these issues resolved. Now, of course, they've got their attention, but really not in the best possible way. And uh, I think the penny is starting to drop uh, here in London that actually the cost of getting a deal may have gone up 
because of the action that they've taken. And uh, so I think, you know, we uh, there's still within the government, it's still not clear exactly uh, whether num number 10 has decided they do want to deal or they don't want to deal. I think, uh, you know, from everything I understand, uh, they would still like a deal, but they are certainly open to the idea of no deal. So there would be an element in there that says, yeah, we want to deal, but only entirely on our terms. There are other elements. People like Michael Gove, who uh, is much more aware of uh, you know, the cost of no deal because he was in charge of no deal planning. And he, uh, by all accounts, is more enthusiastic about doing a deal. Boris Johnson himself uh, seems to be moving between the two positions. But uh, nonetheless, you know, certainly uh, they're still in the market for a deal. And the Europeans haven't walked away from doing that. But one thing is true, which is that as long as this thing is going on and going through the various parts of Parliament, then the Europeans don't have to pull the plug. But the moment that this becomes law, it makes it impossible for a deal to be done between Britain and the European Union because you simply, I mean, it's also actually written in the withdrawal agreement that the future uh, of a trade agreement is based on the implementation of the agreements already made. And so if the British are saying we're not going to implement these things, then, uh, you know, that's the end of the trade talks. So what the hope would be is that the Lords will take their time. I was talking to one of them last night who was suggesting that, you know, the bill with so, uh, it takes so long. It actually takes a rather long time to have to debate that so that all of their lordships will have, be able to have their say on each clause if necessary. And so that would really quite comfortably take us certainly past the middle of October. And the way the system operates is if, say, the lords decide they want to propose some amendments, after debating it for a bit, they send these amendments back to the uh, the House of Commons. The House of Commons then presumably would reject these amendments. The Lords then will uh, have another look at it, debate it again, and then they can send it back uh, with the, their own amendments back to the House of Commons again, and the House of Commons then rejects them. At that stage, the normal course of events would be that that's the end of the matter, and the Lords say, OK, the game's up, you're elected, we're not, so we let this thing go through. But in very exceptional circumstances, and it happens really very seldom, the Lords can say, well, actually, this bill is so egregious, and this one is actually, uh, that we, show, we are going to delay it and they can delay it for up to a year. And then the uh, after a year, the House of Commons can pass it using the Parliament Act, which overrides the, the Lords. Now, I think the Lords will be reluctant to go there. But I also think that they're not going to have to, because by the time you get through all those stages I've just described, you're it's well into late October. You're probably well into November. And by that stage, it will probably become clear if there's going to be a deal or not. And then if there is a deal in the offing, then Boris Johnson would have to remove those clauses and not just say we're going to give Parliament a veto. They'd actually have to go. Um, I find that analysis fascinating, Dennis, to be honest, because I, I think a feature of the Brexit story I found since it began is there always seems to be a little more time and a little more room for manoeuvre than appears to be the case on the surface. And, you know, you mentioned there September 30th or the end of the month. That has sort of been portrayed as an EU deadline to, to London to, to drop these provisions or, you know, they will sort of begin legal proceedings. But you think that there's more time than that and a bit more room here for manoeuvre than appears to be the case? Yes, and also the other thing is that actually they can pursue legal proceedings on the one hand and at the same time keep talking about the free trade agreement. You know, it's actually not that uncommon, say, for the European Union to be in dispute with some country about something 
and then to actually be negotiating with them about something else. You know, you can keep these things separate. And now, in the end, they're not going to be separate because, uh, you know, they're entangled with one another. But actually, if both sides decide that there's a limit to how far they want to escalate things and that there is still some possibility of something happening, then uh, they you know they can uh, modulate these things in such a way that um, you know that you actually do still keep talking. And you touched on something there, Dennis, in your previous answer that I wanted to maybe ask you to expand on, and that's insofar as we can decipher it, what Boris Johnson's strategy is here and what he wants here. Now, I just mentioned an interview you did. Many of our listeners will have read it with Sir Ivan Rogers, the former. Uh, UK ambassador to the EU and he had a fairly bleak assessment really um, a kind of a sobering assessment in which you know he thinks that Boris Johnson has really now gone all in for no deal do you think the evidence points in that direction or is there enough evidence still that he does actually still want a deal and this is all part of his negotiating strategy I think that uh he probably does want a deal, but I think he probably doesn't like the terms of the deal that's on offer because although the Europeans have moved on a number of issues, and so, for example, uh, on the whole issue of state aid or state subsidies, initially what the Europeans wanted was that Britain should uh, remain aligned with all EU laws on this forever. Even if, And so every time the EU would change its laws, that Britain would have to change its laws, even though Britain wouldn't be you know, at the table where these decisions are being made. And so the Europeans have dropped that. And now what they just want is the, some kind of an agreement on the kind of parameters and the rules that will govern the state aid regime in Britain. Uh, but still, I think there is an element but within, the, within Boris Johnson and also just within the vote leave enthusiasts who dominate his operation in uh, Downing Street, who do think that actually the point of Brexit is to diverge from the European Union. And that, uh, you know, if you, uh, as Ivan Rogers was putting it, the kind of deal that's on offer doesn't have a huge amount of economic upside because they've chosen to be quite um, divergent from the European Union. And yet there's still, still some rules, there's still some limitation on their action. And so, the theory that Ivan Rogers was was proposing was that actually, uh, if for Downing Street, backing a deal like this, the one that might be available, and claiming that that is a triumph, after a few months, people might just feel actually this is really not a great deal, and you might have people like Nigel Farage popping up out of his tomb to announce that, uh, you know, actually this is not really Brexit; it's a betrayal all of this, and that maybe actually the best thing to do would be just to go for no deal, to kind of get the old band get to, uh, back together again in terms of uh, blaming the Europeans for everything, get the people in the red wall enthusiastic for you again, stop talking about coronavirus, granny's got a cough, but it doesn't matter because we're at war with the Europeans, and, you know, and to kind of just, you know, to, to cheer everybody up with, with all of this, and then also hope that by showing that you really are prepared to do this, that in a few months' time that the Europeans will come back and say, uh, yeah, look, let's talk again and maybe we can give you more of what you were looking for. Now, I don't, nobody I know in the European Union is speaking to people in Brussels a lot. Uh, there's no evidence that the Europeans uh, would behave in that way at all. But I think that is, you know, there's certainly there is an element within Number 10 and within Boris Johnson that would relish something like that. At the same time, uh, we're getting into sort of bad times with the coronavirus again. Uh, it looks like uh, more restrictions are being introduced in different parts of Britain. There's talk of a 10 p.m. curfew all over the country in the next few weeks. And you'll probably see the uh, economy contracting further. 
and the furlough scheme, which Rishi Sunak introduced a few months ago, which paid 80% of the wages of workers, that's been steadily reduced and it will disappear in October. And that's likely to mean more, uh, you know, a big rise in unemployment. In that environment, do you really want to say to business, uh, we've got a whole load of further disruption? And also some of these good manufacturing jobs, like say in car manufacturing, we're going to put them at risk. And we're going to do it because Dominic Cummings wants to build a space station in Devon. And we've got these great ideas of, you know, making Britain an incredibly powerful, scientific, pioneering country, which may be a good idea. But it's not actually going to happen right away. And so I think that, you know, the pressure to actually, uh, you know, to go for a deal will increase as the next few weeks go on. And I think there's one other factor, which is you saw Joe Biden wading in, into this conversation over the last uh, 24 hours. And I think that uh, in Downing Street, they are conscious of the fact that Joe Biden is likely to win the election. And leaving questions about Northern Ireland and Brexit aside altogether. Joe Biden is an Atlanticist who wants to restore the rules-based international order that has been damaged by Donald Trump. He's definitely going to see partners in uh, Merkel and Macron within Europe and would like, obviously, to have a partner in the United Kingdom and would expect to do so. But if, uh, you know, just after he's elected, uh, Boris Johnson is behaving in a kind of Trumpian fashion of announcing that he's tearing up a treaty that he just signed a few months ago and that Britain is uh, openly defying and breaking international law. That's not the best start. And especially if you're leaving the European Union, you want to have your most powerful friend in the world on side. I think you know the arguments for doing a deal are going to stack up and become more powerful as we get closer to the middle of October and November when some decision is going to have to be made. Dennis, thank you for those insights. Very enjoyable as always. That's all for this week. For more on this and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.